0: Good morning. Hope you had a good Thanksgiving. Uh, the handout here for today is maize colored, and the blue one was for the ABF, so I don't know if you caught that or not, but I actually printed them before the game happened, but I wouldn't have mentioned it if they'd have lost, but it's a good day today for more ways than one. We're going to look at Luke 15, so let me invite you to turn in your Bibles there, Luke chapter 15. Hope you enjoyed your Thanksgiving as I did. And uh, thankful to have my daughter home from college for a week. She just left yesterday and she's finishing up her last semester down at Bob Jones. So we're excited about that. Luke chapter 15. How do you view the sin of others? Do you, do you see the sin of others as a, as a disease that you are inoculated from? Do you despise other people who sin in ways that are more egregious than you? Do do you kind of hate it a little bit when God forgives those sins and leads them to genuine repentance? Does it bother you sometimes when God's mercy triumphs over judgment? If you answered yes to any of those questions, it could be that you don't appreciate the grace and mercy that God has shown to you. It could be that you've never genuinely repented because those who have received mercy from God will be merciful like their Heavenly Father. They won't despise others who receive mercy. They'll rejoice when it happens. God is the kind of God who loves to pursue the outcast and the rebel and the sinner. And I'm so thankful for that today because I was the outcast and the rebel and the sinner. And yet God pursued me. And I think that's what Luke 15 is about. Now, in order for us to understand what's going on in here, we have, just help you to understand what's going on in this whole chapter. First, we have a conversation with Jesus and the Pharisees and scribes. Then we have three parables that Jesus uses to try to answer their question or their concern. In order for us to understand parables, it's important for us to understand three things. So this is just in general I'm going to share this with you because it's going to be important for what we're doing today. If we're going to understand parables properly, first we need to know the occasion of the parable. This answers the question, why did Jesus give this parable? What was he trying to communicate in this parable? So what were the circumstances that led up to it? And we can get the answer to that in verse 1. Notice, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. So this kind of sets the stage for why Jesus... These are not just like random stories. Jesus is like, oh yeah, I wanted to tell you about some things, and this seems like a good time to do it. No, this is because there is an occasion. And the occasion in this case is that Jesus is eating with people who are despised by religious leaders. So we need to know the occasion. We also need to know the audience of the parable. To whom is Jesus speaking? If if he's speaking to believers only, that that helps us to know what kind of truth he's given. Most often, there are unbelievers in earshot because one of the purposes of parables is that they would see and never perceive. They would hear and never understand. That's one of the reasons Jesus gave parables as he did, so that it could be discerning or discerned by believers, but an enigma to unbelievers. Unbelievers. So who, are the, who, who, who is Jesus speaking to? And here we find in verse 2 that he's responding to the Pharisees and the scribes. And the Pharisees and the scribes, they see him eating with tax collectors and sinners, and they say, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Hey, this is a, a, a despising kind of thing. It's not just like, hey, there's an observation. He's eating with these people. He's saying, they're saying, how dare he? And so Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees and the scribes, but also we know that he's speaking to more than just Pharisees and scribes because um, in the last the, the last section in chapter 14, he says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And the implication is that chapter 15, verse 1, has the tax collectors and sinners listening to Jesus. So they are in... in part of the audience, the Pharisees and scribes, and, and probably his disciples as well. So know the occasion, know the audience, and then thirdly, know the limits of the parable. I've heard this passage preached, and they, I've heard that the person who was preaching it gave every single detail of the parable, and they tried to put a spiritual meaning to every single little thing. And I'm going to tell you this morning, that's a wrong way to interpret parables, okay, We need to recognize only the points of comparison that Jesus intended us to to compare. So the example that I use to help illustrate this is if, if someone told me that I eat like a pig, my response would not be, I don't have pink skin and I don't have a curly tail. Well, that's not what they intended, right? When they say I'm eating like a pig, they're saying you eat with your mouth open or you eat super fast, which I do, the, the, the latter, not the former, but I do eat super fast. My wife's like, do you want to taste this food before it goes in, or you just want it to, um, so the point of the statement is I need to make the connections that the author intended. The author only intended that, that I make the point of comparison to the way in which I eat, Not every single detail about a pig is that person trying to connect to me. That would be a wrong way for me to interpret. Same thing here with this parable, or any parables, these three parables, or any parables, that we kind of take every single little detail, make it into like this big spiritual meaning. And I think if Jesus were sitting here, he'd be like, "What are you doing? It's not. It's not an allegory, which is an extended parable." think pilgrim's progress, okay? That's fine to do that as long as the author intended that. But here we want to just find the points of connection. So there's limits. And and so in order to do that, we need to understand what's going on in these three parables. And I think, I'm hoping, that this, this will become clearer by the time we finish, all right? So in Luke 15, we have three parables that all answer one concern by the Pharisees. Why in the world would Jesus eat with these wicked, despised people, that's essentially their question. They're doing it in a cynical way. He eats with tax collectors. There's something wrong with him. Jesus is going to, re- Jesus is going to respond to each one of the, to that question with three parables that s- essentially say the same point, and then he's going to add the, another point at the, the end of the third one. So there are three parables: the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. okay so first the lost sheep. and each of these parables we have something lost something found a response and then a divine application i'm going to just uh, i'm going to try to help us to understand it in terms of three things the, se- the shepherd uh, there's something that's searched for there's something to rejoice about and then there's a divine application all right so in the first one we have we have a person who searches for something this is a shepherd he's lost his sheep Let me just read this section here for us. Verse 3. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after that one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven... Over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So here we have a shepherd who lost his sheep. And this parable highlights the helplessness of a lost sheep. The lost sheep outside of the fold is as good as dead. And so the shepherd leaves the 99 to go for the one. He searches for something, verses 3 and 4. Then he rejoices when he finds it, verses 5 and 6. He rejoices and throws a party with his friends. Now, one thing we should note about this, it's not very clear in our English translation, is that verses 4 through 6 contain one interrogative sentence in the Greek. What do I mean by an interrogative sentence? I just gave you an example. Do you want me to give you another one? I just gave you another one. Okay? Interrogative sentence is a question. So, in the Greek, verses 4 through 6 is one sentence, it's one question. Now, it's difficult for us to make a long sentence like that. But that's what Jesus did when he spoke. And so, this is how the question could go. And you you can look at this chart on the back of your handout, on the bottom there. It gives you kind of an outline for what this question is going to look like. Here's the question. What shepherd who lost his sheep... Would not actively search for it and rejoice with friends when he found it? That's the question Jesus is asking. So he actually doesn't say a whole lot. He doesn't go directly at the, at the Pharisees and scribes and say, You wicked people, I'm rejoicing over something that God rejoices over. He's saying, Shepherds, when they lose a sheep, they go after it fervently and they rejoice. Passionately, when they find it. The point is that the hearer should agree that we search for it. That's why he gives this kind of open ended question, a, um, a rhetorical question, but the implied answer is no one. Whoever lo- loses, any good shepherd who loses a sheep is going to actively search for it and is going to passionately rejoice when he finds it. That's pretty obvious, right? Here's the divine application. Verse 7, just so, so he kind of pulls away from his question and tries to apply it for them, just so there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So keep in mind that Jesus is addressing the Pharisees and scribes in verse 2. Pharisees hate sinners. And here's the contrast. That's not God. He loves to pursue sinners. And he rejoices when sinners repent. And this is the refrain we're going to see in each parable. God loves to pursue sinners. And God loves to rejoice when sinners repent. So there is joy in heaven. And it's not just the angels. Sometimes you might think, oh, it's just the angels rejoicing whenever someone comes to repentance. But no, this is, this is everyone in heaven is rejoicing over one sinner who repents. This is an opportunity for a party in heaven when sinners repent. It's easy to understand, I think, what joy in heaven over one sinner who repents means. But what does it mean when it says that Jesus is, has less joy over 99 righteous people who need no repentance? We'll come back to that at the end. So, it's one thing to lose one sheep out of 100, but what if you lost one coin out of 10? That's what happens in the second parable. The parable of the lost coin, verses 8 through 10. We have a similar situation where a a woman loses something of great value, verse 8. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, She calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So here, the woman searches. This coin that was lost is literally one Greek drachma or a Roman denarius, which is one day's wage. So just think, if you lost something that was worth a couple hundred dollars, and it wasn't just like... I'm saving this for future, but think about this is my sustenance for this week. Would you not actively search for it, drop everything in order to go after this money that you had lost? And in that day, they would have had to light a lamp since there were no windows and the floors were made of dirt, so that's why the sweeping is going on. What you should notice about this parable as well is that in verses 8 and 9, we have one interrogative sentence again, where Jesus is making a question, and he's doing something similar to the first one. He's essentially saying, What woman who lost a coin would not actively search for it and then passionately rejoice when she found it? And the implied answer is, No one. No woman would neglect to search for something that valuable. And no woman would fail to rejoice when she found it. And that's what she does, verse 9. She finds it and calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found what I had lost. Now the divine application in verse 10. Just so I tell you there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Okay, again, it kind of sounds like it's just the angels of God, but notice the, how it's written there. There is joy before the angels of God, in front of the angels of God. That is, it's talking about God himself. God is the one who, re, who rejoices. Similar to verse 7. God and the angels are rejoicing. God and is, is rejoicing before the angels, verse 10, when a sinner repents. So Jesus says, it makes total sense that when a shepherd loses one sheep of 100, he goes after it. And when a woman loses one coin of 10, she goes after it. But it's even more serious here in this third parable because a father loses one son of two. So in verses 11 through 32, we have the parable of the lost son. Now, in the first two parables, we have the loss of the object stated in just a few words. Verse 4, lost one of the sheep. Verse 8, loses one coin. So we describe the whole losing part in just a few words in those first parables. But here, the loss of the, the object, or in this case, the person, is stated not in just a few words, but in verses 11 through 19. This is what it looks like to lose a son. Jesus is drawing us into the story to help us to understand the weight of losing a son. The son didn't want to wait until his dad died to get his inheritance. He wanted it right then. So let's read verses 11 through 19. and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and, one, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. As the youngest son he was entitled to one-third of the estates because the oldest son received a double portion of the father's blessing or birthright. And so, basically, if you had two children, then the older son would get two portions and the younger son would get the third portion. If you had five children, break it into six. The oldest gets two portions. The others just get one. So you can do the math on your own family. We're not going to take time to do everybody's math in this room, but... That's how it worked. So, whatever the case, he, w- he didn't want to wait till his father died. He's ready for his inheritance now. And the father allowed the son to get his re- request. But first, in order to do this, it's not like he, he's got a lot of cash in the bank. right? So he, he probably had to divide his estate, sell some livestock perhaps, sell some land in order to get enough currency to pass on to the younger son. It looks like the older son gets a possession of his inheritance as well, because verse 12 says he divided his wealth between them. Whatever the case, after selling everything that he has, the son takes the money and goes on a trip to spend his money on what the scriptures call loose living, in verse 13. And things went from bad to worse for him. A famine came along and crippled him financially. He spent all of the, that he had, and then a, a famine causes his possessions to decrease in value. And so he would have likely had to sell them to stay alive. And so in verses 15 to 16, he gets a job working for a Gentile pig farmer, of all people. Here you have a presumably Jewish boy working for a Gentile, feeding the pigs, wishing that he could eat with them. Couldn't sink any lower if, if this was referring to a Jew. Abandoning his family, his heritage, and no life to show for it. And there he is, sitting with the pigs in verse 17, wishing that he could eat with them. And he has a thought. My dad would treat me better as a better employee than this Gentile would. Notice verse 17. But when he came to himself, or when he came to his senses. This is the the start of repentance. Now, hopefully you're starting to make some connections here between what what's going on here, and what Jesus is describing or illustrating for the Pharisees and scribes. They're wondering, why would you ever spend time with tax collectors and sinners? They're a lost cause. Jesus has said so far, go after what is lost. God goes after what is lost. That's essentially what he said twice. It's kind of like two right jabs. God goes after what is lost. God pursues the lost sinner. He's setting it up here for a big left hook that he's going to give to the Pharisees here at the end. He comes to his senses. These tax collectors and sinners could also come to their senses. They also could repent. They also could bring great joy to God if they were to repent, right? Right? The prodigal son recognizes that if he's going to go back to his dad, he has to confess his sin to his dad and to God, and that's what he does. He rehearses this statement in his mind. Verse 18, I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, notice what he says here, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. So, he's acknowledging sin. That's important. Second, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. So, he's He's acknowledging the hurt that he's caused to his father. I'm not worthy to be called your son. He's essentially starting to accept the consequences here in this last statement in verse 19. Number three, treat me as one of your hired servants. So he has three things to tell his father. I've sinned. I'm not worthy. Treat me like a servant. This is repentance happening before our eyes. This is what repentance looks like. It starts with us coming to our senses, or as verse 17, coming to ourselves. When he came to himself, he starts to make a plan for what he's going to do, and then he's going to act on that plan. That's repentance. It's a turning away from what our former way of life was to what it should be. Jesus is describing that or illustrating that for us. So after having rehearsed it, What he's going to say to his dad, he goes back to his father in verse 20. He arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion, ran and embraced him and kissed him. So this is the active pursuit of the father. It seems like in the first two parables, shepherd actively going after the lost sheep, woman actively going after the lost coin, father sitting on the porch... But this is the active part. He's not going to force his son to come back. His son has to be repentant before his father is willing to to receive him, to offer forgiveness. And so the active part is seeing his son return. He runs to him. Now, notice what he says in verse 20 the son. Remember, he had those three things he was going to say I've sinned, I'm not worthy, make me a servant. Doesn't quite turn out that way. Verse 21, the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. That's the first one. That's exactly how he had had prepared it. Number two, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. That was the second one, exactly as he rehearsed it. What was that third one? Make me like a hired servant. Where is it? It's not there. Why? What What stops us in the story? The father. The father jumps in and cuts him off. He says, bring quickly the best robe. Put it on him. Put on a ring. Shoes on his feet. Bring a fattened calf. Kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this son was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Do you know why the son didn't state that third part, make me like one of your servants? seems to me that the father cut him off. He was so excited about starting the celebration. Isn't this like our God? God doesn't wait for us to fully reform to give us forgiveness, does he? If you repent of your sins, then he is faithful and just to forgive. Is that how it goes? If we confess, it's simply a confession. We haven't even made the change fully yet, have we? Here God is. It's like us. When we come back to God, we've been far away from God. It's almost like we take the first step towards Him. He comes running to embrace us. We offer our contrition for our sin. God's ready to move on already. That is the nature of our loving, merciful God. Celebration begins before the words of repentance fully come out of the son's mouth father rejoices in verses 22 through 24 the preliminary celebration comes when he sees him over the hill essentially and now he gives the full celebration with the feast this was my formerly lost son give him the best of the best give him the best robe give him the ring give him the sandals, kill the fattened calf, we're going to eat, we're going to party tonight because my son is home. My son was lost and he is found. He was dead and now is alive. Some of you as parents have experienced that with rebellious children who have wandered away from the faith, wandered away maybe from a relationship with you. Some of you have experienced the return of that. and You know that joy. It's not time to rehearse everything that's happened in the past. It's time to celebrate. We've been praying for you for a long time. We've been longing to have this relationship with you. Let's celebrate. So do you remember the question from the first two parables? What shepherd who lost his sheep would not actively search for it and then passionately rejoice when he found it? What woman who lost her coin would not actively search for it and then passionately rejoice with friends when she found it? And here's how we could describe verses 11 through 24. What father who lost his son would not actively search for him and passionately rejoice with friends when he found him? And the implied answer is no one. No good father would fail to, re, to, fall, to actively pursue his son who was lost. No father would choose not to rejoice when his son returned. And so Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, you're concerned with me eating with tax collectors and sinners. But let me tell you something. I am doing what my father loves to do. He loves to pursue despised and worthless people from human terms, like that. And he's a good father. He's like a good shepherd. He's like a good woman who searches for a coin, and he's like a good father. And he's going to rejoice. When they're found. So, if this ended here, we could tie up all these three parables, we could tie it with a nice little bow and say, God loves to save sinners. And we would be right to do that. But there's another facet of this teaching that Jesus wants to show us in verses twenty-five through thirty-two. He he almost takes this beautiful truth that God loves to pursue sinners and he turns it a little bit. To drive home the point to the Pharisees. Let's see if we can understand what he's doing here. Verses 25 through 30. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry, and he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this, your brother, was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So, verses 25 and 26, the older brother hears the news of his lost brother returning and he finds out that a huge banquet is being thrown for him in verse 27 I would describe the older brother as self-righteous now there's one main reason why I would say that I'm going to show you that in verse 7 but before I do that let me show show you how his self-righteous response is expressed in verses 28 through 30 he was angry verse 28 you never threw a feast for me you give him a big, big steak dinner and you haven't grilled a hot dog for me. He's quick to point out the sin of the younger brother. He was unwilling to accept the younger brother returning to the family. The young, younger brother, in his mind, had committed the unforgivable sin and that the father was wrong to receive him. If I were in your shoes, I wouldn't have done that. You're wrong to show him mercy. He needs judgment. We can see the, just the utter hatred that this older brother has. He never calls his father, father. He never owns his brother. Look at verse 29. He doesn't say, Father, these many years. He says, look, these many years I have served you. And then notice verse 30. He doesn't call him his brother, he says, this son of yours, this is what spouses do, when, like this child of yours did something, go, talk, go deal with it, right? It's when we're not taking ownership for ourselves, that's this older brother. In contrast, the younger brother is constantly calling him father, verse 12, 18, and 21. I will go to my father, and I will say to him, father, I have sinned see this older brother is blinded to his own sin and his need for repentance his own, he, he is blinded to all the mercy that he already has received so now the divine application is found in verses 31 and 32 I think by now you see the main characters in the story the shepherd the woman and the father are all like God The lost sheep, the lost coin, and lost son are like the tax collectors and sinners who need repentance. The older brother is like whom? The Pharisees and scribes, right? They grumble over the fact that Jesus is joyfully welcoming sinners. Look at verse 2 again. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. How could you throw a huge feast for them? They have spent their lives on loose living. And here you are treating them as if nothing's wrong, as if it's all cleared, taken away. Don't you see? They are unworthy of your attention. They're unworthy of your mercy. They're unworthy of your love. But by contrast, we, the Pharisees and scribes, are worthy of your love and attention and mercy. And yet, for some reason, you're ignoring us? I want you to notice something in these parables. And that is whose evaluation determines whether something is valuable or not. It's the shepherd who sees the sheep as valuable enough to go after it. It's the woman who sees the coin as valuable enough to drop everything and search for it. It's the father who sees the son as valuable enough to lovingly wait for him and rejoice when he returns. So if the shepherd, woman, and father all point us to God, then what does that say about whose evaluation matters most? see that the Pharisees and scribes are looking at the same lost son as the father, these tax collectors and sinners. They see them in very different, a very different light than the father. The father, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, the Pharisees and sinners, justice, wrath. And From their perspective, my younger brother has been lost. He's as good as dead for all I care. He's made his peace. He's done what he's wanted to do. He's made his choices. It's over. He ought to receive the wrath that he deserves. In this third parable, we have a surprising twist that we didn't have in the first two. The younger brother was on the outside of the Father's blessing, but by the end, he's on the inside. And the older brother, who was on the inside of God's blessing, is now on the outside. And if we were to put this last parable into the form of a question, Jesus does not do this, okay? So the first two, they were in the form of a question. I summarize them for us. He doesn't do this on this last parable. I'm summarizing it for us. But if this, the last part of this third parable... Let's just review the first ones. What shepherd who lost a sheep would not actively search for it and then rejoice with friends when he found it? No good shepherd would fail to do those things. What woman who lost her coin would not search for it and then rejoice with friends when she found it? No one, no good woman would not search And rejoice. What father who lost his son would not actively search for it and passionately rejoice with friends when he found it? No one. He sees it as valuable. He will search. He will rejoice. Here's the last one. Verses 25 through 32. What person who lost his brother would not search for him And then passionately rejoiced with friends when he found him. What brother would do that? And the implied answer is an unbelieving one. One who doesn't have the same interests as his father. One who actually is on the outside. This is the height of self-righteousness. You see, a self-righteous person doesn't think he needs mercy because mercy is offensive to those who think they don't need it. When mercy is displayed on someone, it's not fair because I didn't need it. Therefore, I'm not going to rejoice when others receive it. And So here... In the first two parables, we have a couple of jabs that lead up to this right hook. So the three left jabs are this. God rejoices when sinners repent. That's the first one. That's what shepherds do when they lose their sheep. They rejoice. That's what I do with the tax collectors. That's the first jab. The second jab is in the, the next parable, and that is God rejoices when sinners repent. He's setting him up the third parable at the beginning the father rejoices when the son returns and that's the third jab God rejoices when sinners repent and here comes the right hook and I think one of the themes for for this text true sons rejoice with the father when sinners repent true sons this is the, the blanks on the very bottom of the back True sons rejoice with the Father when sinners repent. The problem is that the older brother doesn't believe that the younger brother is worthy of the Father's love. And so Jesus is saying through these parables everyone who loses something of value actively searches for it, everyone who finds something of value rejoices with friends when they find it. And do you see the point? You Pharisees, you are like the older brother. You don't see any value in the tax collectors and sinners. And so you're not going to actively search for him. And when he returns, you're not going to rejoice passionately with friends. Because there's no value in your view. And yet, notice this loving picture of God's beautiful mercy, even shown to the Pharisees in the very last couple of verses verse 31 and he said to him son you are always with me and all that is mine is yours it was fitting to celebrate so here he's essentially extending another opportunity for you pharisees to come back to repentance to actually join in the celebration he's not saying you're far off you're removed the main problems that the main problem that the pharisees had against jesus is that he showed mercies to sinners and that he identified with them, verse 2. Jesus responds in the form of three parables saying, yes, I do show mercy. I do show mercy to sinners because that's what God the Father does. So let's go back to verse 7 because I want to explain this phrase here that I skipped over. Verse 7, Just so I tell you there will be more joy over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, we could say the same thing about the nine coins that didn't need to be found. Right? There's, there's more joy over one coin than, that's found o- than over nine coins that didn't need to be found. There's more joy over one brother, son, that is found than over the other son that, that wasn't lost. And I think the point of verse 7 would be clear if we used air quotes over one section, because I think Jesus is using some sarcasm here. He's saying, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance, just like you. You don't need any repentance. You've been the perfect model of a son all these years. Another way we could say it is, God rejoices more over one sinner who repents than over 99 self-righteous people like you. You don't. It's not the healthy that need a doctor, Jesus says in another place, right? It's the sick. If you don't see that you're sick, you're not going to seek out a doctor. You are self-righteous. You think you have it all figured out. And so when you look at other people, you hate it when they receive mercy, because you don't think you need any. But the tragedy is that your self righteousness is actually going to cause you to miss out on the blessings that the Father has offered to you as well. So two principles in one application as we conclude this morning. Two principles in one application. Principle number one. God actively searches out lost sinners. God is the one who searches out lost sinners. He loves to do this. This is what Jesus came to do. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Me and you. God's not passively waiting up there in heaven, waiting for people to repent. He doesn't think, well, too bad that sheep's lost or too bad I dropped that coin. Oh, well, too bad I lost that son. Guess it's back to work. No, he passionately is pursuing those who are lost. He's waiting on the front porch, looking over the hill, waiting for us to come to him in repentance and faith. And he's so passionate about searching for lost sinners that he sent Christ to ransom us from our sins. And because God loves to pursue sinners like you and me, we should be amazed at His grace. That He gladly embraces us when we come to Him. When we come to Him in contrition, God runs to us. God actively seeks out lost sinners. Number two, God passionately rejoices when sinners repent. Listen to the three refrains again. Verse 7, There will be joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Verse 10, there is joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Verses 20 and following, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion, ran, embraced him, and kissed him. Let us eat and celebrate, and they began to celebrate. Verse 32, we had to celebrate and rejoice. This is God's passion for lost sinners. He loves them. And we should follow his example. We should, on behalf of God, do the same. Seek out lost sinners and then rejoice when they come to repentance. And here's the application. We who have experienced God's grace should not despise others when they receive it. You might be thinking this This passage seems to be about kind of drawing a line in the sand between a believer and an unbeliever. And that just doesn't make sense then. And I would say, yes, that is why we must test ourselves to make sure that we're not thinking and acting like these self righteous Pharisees and scribes. They see themselves as responsible and obedient and even deserving of the Father's mercy. But here's a great test of whether we are truly part of the family of God. Now, this is not the means of it. The means is Christ's blood, Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. But here's a test to see if we are in the faith. How do we respond when someone else that we despise is shown mercy? Because grace... Is offensive to those who think they don't need it. And what can subtly happen over time for us as Christians is that we start out reveling in God's mercy, recognizing the deepness of our sin, praising God for his grace, and over time we start to see how good we are, how many good things we've done, and how we're not like those people back there. We start to think of ourselves like a treasure that God pursued. We don't see ourselves as a as a huge pile of garbage like these tax collectors and sinners are, right It's like this huge mess that's going to take lots of work to get rid of. But for us, you know we think back, I mean we gets, come on, I got saved when I was six. I mean, really, how much sin could there have been? It's more like instead of a huge pile of trash, it's like a little orange peel that needs to be disposed of yes but it's kind of sweet smelling and maybe still useful for some things that's how god saved me that's self-righteousness we don't actually see ourselves as no i was the one who was the pile of trash the worthless enemy of god who deserved his wrath and god should have destroyed me but for some reason he showed mercy to me but over time, what, what's ha- subtly happened is I've started to put my confidence in my own righteousness, in my own goodness. Kind of think, you know what, God, you were right to choose me. That was a good choice by you. I really turned out pretty well. I'm a really good team player. I mean, you'd be pretty bad off if, you were, if I weren't on your team. That's self-righteousness. That's the Pharisees. And so what Jesus is doing is shocking them to the reality of their former condition, or in this case, their, their current condition. But we need to guard ourselves, that we don't start to subtly think that we earned mercy, because you can't earn mercy, it's undeserved. If you earned it, it would be a wage. But God gave it to you by grace. You have been saved, not of yourself, so that no one can boast. So here's a good test for us. How do we respond when people that we despise receive mercy? It's a good test of whether we are thinking like our father, who is merciful, or we're thinking like the older brother, who's self-righteous. Do you grieve when a professing believer turns their back on God, starts to walk on a pathway of destruction, or is it like, eh, fine. They've, They've mistreated me, so good riddance to them. What about when they're restored? Do you take pleasure in seeing God's grace poured out on them? Or does it grieve you that they didn't crash and burn? Why couldn't they have received judgment? That would have been so much better for them. Those who have not experienced God's mercy despise those who receive it. But those who have experienced God's mercy will rejoice like their father when sinners repent. Our father is merciful. He's ready to forgive. If you're here this morning and you haven't trusted in Jesus Christ, you haven't been forgiven by God, you bear the weight of your guilt, and Jesus offers an answer for you today you can be welcomed into the Father's family, receive the inheritance of the firstborn if you will trust in Jesus and his finished sacrifice. If you'd like to know how to do that, I'd be happy to talk with you, Pastor Joey, any of the members of this church, I'm sure would love to talk to you. God is a merciful Father. He diligently searches for sinners and passionately rejoices when sinners are found. And true sons and daughters of God rejoice with the Father when sinners repent. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being merciful to a sinner like me. Lord, I was lost, condemned, at enmity, dead in my trespasses and sins, not sick or needing a life preserver. I was dead. I needed you to give me life, to impart spiritual life to me who was spiritually dead, and you did that by your mercy. And yet, There are times in which I despise the mercy that you showed to others. I become self-righteous. So, Lord, please forgive. Forgive us when we do that. Help us to to see ourselves properly in in light of our former condition. See ourselves properly in, in light of the enemies of you. And help us to fall on you for mercy, knowing that you are a good Father who is quick to forgive slow to anger and abounding in love. You do not treat us as our sins deserve. Thankful for you today.